0: This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. On this episode, I interview Justin Thuwin, who's the co-founder and CEO of LoisRates.ca, one of the fastest growing companies in North America. Justin was named the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award finalist, and under his leadership, LoisRates.ca ranked 50 among 500 of Canada's fastest growing companies for four years in a row now. So so with this whole quarantine thing, uh, with COVID, that whole situation and and being an entrepreneur, Justin, I really kind of wanted to ask what has been, you know, probably the the biggest transition for you as a business owner, how you've led your team through this transition and maybe advice for other founders going through this at, at this moment.
1: Right. Well, the biggest difference has obviously just been not seeing each other day to day communication between groups, And between people is so important for the success of a business and so the biggest challenge is if you can't see each other every day how do you stay connected how do you communicate well with each other how do you create that sense of togetherness within the company if you're not physically with each other so that's been the biggest challenge we've tried to address that with at least once per week kind of all hands on deck meetings Mm -hmm. where I lead the meeting and we open the floor up to anyone to talk about anything they may be feeling. And it can be anything from things to do with work to things they're doing in their personal lives differently that may be kind of silver linings or fun things that they're finding that they have time to do that they didn't have time before, just to really create that sense of togetherness. So I think that's really important. We're also using this as an opportunity to test drive the ability to do more work from home because there's some people that really value working from home. You know, Toronto's an expensive place to live. Some of our team members live quite far and have quite a long commute. And so in the past we haven't necessarily encouraged working from home Mm -hmm. because communication is so important, especially in a rapidly growing company like ours. And so we're using this as an opportunity to have the team demonstrate that they can work from home and that productivity can actually be greater, than if you're in the office and the communication won't suffer. So I've kind of issued it as a challenge to those who really want more work from home flexibility to kind of right. demonstrate that it is something that the company can work as well and potentially even better, you know, not necessarily being together physically. So those have been some of the, the big changes.
0: Well, it's funny you say the, the working from home uh, kind of mindset shift. Because I would I definitely have to agree. Right. And, and to your point, like some people have to commute, but for other people, it's really a necessity. Right. They can't afford child, uh, like, uh, you know, maybe someone to, to take care of their kids while they're, they're both working or whatever the case is from a personal perspective. And that does remind me of uh, Andrew D'Souza from, from Clearbank uh, once posted this video, which is also true from the other end of it. And that's I'm going to come up with a question right after it. But he was basically saying that the reason they don't love working from home. Uh, kind of a hundred percent is because when everybody's together, it's kind of like a, it's like a cell reaction. You know, people are feeding off of each other. They're collaborating in a perfect environment, obviously. And, and people are inspiring each other. They're encouraging you to work more. Uh, so you have this collection of thoughts, ideas all together at the same time in, in, in a, in a sort of team function. That begs the question though, do you think that out of what's happening now and people getting that sense of, you know, this is actually, interesting, like I can work from home, I can still be productive, I can take care of my personal errands. Um, Do you think that shift is going to be more towards work from home moving forward when, when things normalize?
1: I think so. I think this is opening the eyes of a lot of business leaders and companies that work can still be done productively and companies still can be grown with part of the team working from home on a part Or full time basis. So I think this really is going to kind of lead to a transition in the way a lot of companies look at work from home because there's advantages to work from home. You know, from an economic standpoint, Mm -hmm. you know, rent is a big part of a lot of companies' expenses. And if more people work from home, you could potentially lower rent. Um, If more people work from home, you could potentially lower salaries, because there's some people that are more interested in the flexibility in working from home than they are in a higher salary. I think there's always going to be a place for people being together physically, you know, as the gentleman that you referenced mentioned, mm-hmm. there's just something about the camaraderie and the the environment, the, the team environment when people are physically together. And I think that's something that at LowestRates.ca, at least we're going to continue to value. But I think that working from home is going to be an option that we're a little bit more flexible on after having gone through this and seeing that you can do it effectively. I think there's certain type of work that lends itself more to work from home. Mm-hmm. So it's the kind of work that you can do independently, it's analytical work, right. it's probably project work that you can work on your own, but I think there's no substitution for being together when it comes to brainstorming or when it comes to, you know, setting up big projects or doing um you know postmortems on big projects i really think that you need to kind of have that energy and um bounce off one another those thoughts and so we're never going to go to a purely work from home environment ourselves but i've talked to a lot of colleagues that um, are actually excited at maybe some of the cost savings and benefits the work from home may bring that they weren't open to before
0: mm-hmm. and and l- last thing on this uh, justin just because i I had an interaction with a CEO here in Chicago not too long ago and he was basically telling me that they were they were somewhat testing the you know work from home concept as covid was starting to surface a little bit more but you know they're they're a small tech startup so for them they were remote for the most part and he he was just having some challenges with uh, accountability and more so accountability towards a salesperson who and I don't know what the what the you know real reason is but uh, basically, you know, it's been two weeks, hasn't been, you know, doing uh, the work essentially, and not sure how to get that person kind of motivated or, or held accountable for their role or responsibility. So just wondering from your perspective, and then we'll delve into lowest rates a bit more. But just from from your perspective, how, how would you advise CEOs, founders of these smaller startups to hold their, uh, their employees more accountable, especially now that there's there isn't really that, that physical oversight that there was once.
1: Of course, that's an absolute concern. And that's something that we addressed with the team here, you know, ultimately and ideally you should have ultimate trust Mm -hmm. in all your team members. If you can't trust all your team members, then they shouldn't be in the company because the people that you should have in your company should be people that you don't need to micromanage or have Massive oversight over because these are people that want to be there, that buy into your mission, that buy into your vision, that wake up every day excited to do a phenomenal job, not just for your company, but also for themselves because they have an obligation not just to the company to earn money, but also to themselves to do a great job because Mm -hmm. they're happy about what they're doing. So if there's people that you have to micromanage, it's probably an indication that they shouldn't be with you because for some re- one reason or the other, they're not getting enough out of the experience within the company. But I said to all the team members, I said, look, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for all of you to demonstrate to us that you can be trusted fully and that you don't need to be in the office and that we know that whether you're in the office, whether you're even in the same country, that you can be trusted to do your job, and to actually do more work and be more productive than you were in the office because you don't have that time getting ready in the morning or you don't have that time you know, driving to work and from work or taking public transit. But I think the overarching message needs to be if you can't trust a particular person to produce, then they shouldn't be with you.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I love your point about, and that was kind of my mindset to be honest, going into this was, you know what, I think now is is almost a test for every employee, right? Um, for, from the top to bottom, and I think the, the neat part about this is it actually portrays the the, the true personalities from each other. You know, so just because there there's a bit of a challenge in terms of the COVID situation, working from home, adjusting to being fully digital, whatever the case is, now is the chance for a lot of people to really rise up and, and showcase. You know, what I'm I'm capable of of taking on a leadership position and and doing my job to 100% if not even more productive. Because to your point, I can save a lot of time. You know, like, man, imagine you remember before, like I'm on the BD side. So for me, I'd have to do a lot of meetings, right? And and a lot of them were at coffee shops or different offices. And I'd always have to budget at least 15 to 20 minutes before and after. Now I can do like, I don't know, three, four times more of the meetings per day and feel less tired by the end of it, you know, Absolutely. so and, and again, not not that it's going to replace it. That's not what I'm getting to is, is uh, just to your point about if if you want to find a way to make this kind of productive and constructive for you, you will, right? It doesn't matter what position you're in.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's a great point. I mean, I've never been someone that does a lot of coffee meetings for exactly the reason that you bring up, because it takes time to go from the office to the coffee shop and back. And mm-hmm. when you're trying to run a company and grow something, you don't have a lot of time. And so I've often preferred either a person comes to my office Mm-hmm. or we do a phone meeting. It, it's, it's a great point. There's a lot of opportunities for efficiencies in this work from home environment. And it really is an opportunity for people to demonstrate, hey, I can be trusted and I can do even better working from home. So for some people who are really, who really want that, it can be their, this is their opportunity to say, hey, when the world goes back to normal, you know, allow me this because I've proven that I can be trusted to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think just generally as a company, that's the approach we're taking. There's a lot of companies that, I think are taking their eye off the ball and not to be critical, but because they have to, because they can't meet payroll or because they simply don't have consumers coming to their company anymore to buy their products. But I look at it at it for our company as an opportunity to really focus in on where we can make improvements, where we can delight consumers to focus on what it's going to take to grow and do even better so that when the world gets back to normal, we've kind of gained ground and surpassed certain companies that may have taken their eye off the ball. So I I, I think that people need to look at this as an opportunity to focus in on the things that are important and to maybe get rid of some of the distractions that they would have had before.
0: Mm. Very, very good point. One of the things I did want to touch on. So obviously with lowest rates, you know, you built one of the largest, and fastest growing uh, companies in North America that touches on this point, which is providing Canadians with a very kind of easy and convenient way to um, to basically comp- compare whether it's uh, insurance, mortgages, credit cards, uh, what we call valuable assets. Right. Every person is going to go through them. And I think why I want to touch on this point and kind of bridge what you guys are doing at lowest uh, lowest rates is. A couple of my friends at this point are looking at the economy being in a in a, in a recession in whichever way you want to define it. Uh, they're looking at the real estate market as, is this a good time to be kind of delving into the real estate market, buying your first home, making that first purchase, et cetera, et cetera. Are you seeing an uptick in, in the activity with lowest rates? And and also, are you kind of creating content that, that uh, touches on this topic for a lot of millennials? Just kind of curious.
1: So we're seeing an uptick in certain areas and we're seeing a decline in other areas. Okay. So we provide personal financial information and comparison options for consumers across the gamut of personal financial products. So for mortgages, car insurance, home insurance, life insurance, credit cards, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So where we see an increase in consumers right now is in areas where people can conserve cash. I think that there's a lot of anxiety in terms of conserving cash and mm-hmm. minimizing expenses. So maximizing the amount you can keep in your pocket and minimizing the amount you're spending. So where we're seeing a lot of people coming to our site are in things like mortgage refinancing. So I have a mortgage, how can I pay a lower rate so that my monthly payments go down? how can I perhaps put my mortgage on hold for a number of months because I may have lost my job or my salary may have gone down. We're also seeing a lot of people interested in, you know, how can I pay less interest? And so there are things like balance transfer credit cards where you can transfer your credit card debt from credit cards where you might be paying 20% Mm -hmm. to these cards where for 10 or 12 months you can actually pay 0% interest. And so, You can again cut costs and cut the amount of cash that you're spending you know on car insurance and home insurance you know particularly on car insurance there's insurance companies out there right now that are giving money back to consumers because there's fewer accidents on the road people are driving less and so that change in behavior is allowing car insurance companies to give back some money to consumers so that's really where we've seen an increase in interest is in ways that consumers can stop spending money and keep more in their pocket We've seen a real decline in, you know, new purchase mortgages Mm. because the housing market's drying up. You know, you can't do open houses right now. So there's much fewer people actually buying and selling their homes right now. We've seen a big fall in people looking for car insurance for new cars and people looking for car loans for new cars because no one's going to car dealerships right now. You know, people are practicing physical and social distancing. So, that's really declined as well. So it's kind of a mixed bag in terms of where people are interested right now. In terms of whether it's a good time to get into the real estate market right now, it's difficult to tell. I mean, mm. there's probably a lot less on the market right now in terms of homes and condos because you, you simply can't go and see them and there's not many people that are going to be open to buying a place sight unseen. And in places like Toronto, the, the hope is and 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 the kind of vision is that life is going to get back to normal. So I don't think you're seeing prices really declining that much. Exactly. So I wouldn't say that now is any better a time to get into the housing market than it was six months ago. You know, now yeah. it's a different conversation is now a good time to get into the stock market. You know, at some point, it likely will be a good time to get into the stock market. But mm-hmm. whether the trough is today or whether the trough is you know, six months from now, it's difficult to know. I think if you're going to get into anything like that, whether it's the housing market or the stock market, it's very difficult to time the market. I think what you need to do is you need to find an asset that you value that you think is high quality and hold it for the long term. And the long term is typically two market cycles, which is 10 years. If you're not exactly. willing to hold it for five to 10 years, you probably shouldn't be investing because you're not going to be able to time them
0: a hundred percent. I love that advice, especially now that you're seeing a lot of blue chip companies with with big discounts, right? Um, so, and I love your point about whether it's the real estate market or the stock market. I think what we're also talking about is is using this time to, to educate yourself on both. And I think you're a big proponent of this, especially when it comes to personal finance, because guess what? I studied finance as well, Justin, in, in uni and not to kind of bash the finance program, but personal finance was never a part of it. You know, a lot of what we studied was more about the investment portion of finance. So doing discounted cash flow, I was looking at options, but it was never about managing my personal finances, <laughs> you know? So I felt that was kind of always a weird conundrum. Like I, I have a, I hold a bachelor's in, in finance, yet everything I had to learn about my personal finances, I had to study by myself and get educated, whether it was online courses or whatever the case is. And I, I think from listening to, you know, previous talks that you that you did or podcasts, and knowing you personally, a big part of why you started lowest rates was just for that, because you felt that a lot of the larger financial institutions weren't providing the proper, understandable visibility on those valuable assets that Canadians are looking at making a move on.
1: Absolutely. I think that personal financial literacy is one of the largest problems in Canada right now. Mm. And more so, it's one of the largest problems that Canadians don't even know that they have. If you ask the average Canadian, are you financially literate? Most of them will think, well, yes, I am. You know, I do my banking with one of the big six banks. They're trusted institutions. They have my best interest at heart. And while that may be true in some cases, it's simply not true in others. If you look, what are the most profitable companies in Canada? It's Canada's big banks, Hmm. and they enjoy a large profit margin. And I'm not blaming them because why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they charge what they can? But in many cases, Canadians can save hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of dollars per year by simply understanding personal finance better and by simply comparing their options. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to help Canadians make better financial decisions so that Hmm. they can save their heart, hard-earned money, and lead happier lives, and spend the money where it matters, because we see Canadians essentially taking money out of their pocket and burning it with these bad financial decisions. I'll give you an example. You can walk into a bank and say, hey, I'm interested in a mortgage, and they can say, great, and they'll offer you a rate, and you have no idea whether that mortgage rate is good or bad. A lot of people just say, you know what? This is one of the big six banks. They've been around for hundreds of years. I can trust that rate. Exactly. But the truth of the matter is, if a person takes some time to compare, they can save easily thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars per year on their mortgage. And that's not an exaggeration. Mortgages are huge, especially in Toronto or Vancouver. You know, The number can get to tens of thousands if you look at the highest mortgage rate that a person's eligible for and the lowest rate a person's eligible for. And this is not just the average Canadian that is undereducated on this. You know, I know a lot of doctors, and doctors make some of the worst personal financial decisions. They make a lot of money, and they don't know any better. And so they're being taken advantage of, and they, they often have terrible mortgage rates. Mm-hmm. They never re-quote their car insurance, so they stay with the same car insurance company for 20 years, and they could be paying hundreds or thousands of dollars too much in their car insurance. Some of them have credit card interest because they don't even realize that they're being charged 20% per month on credit card and they just don't bother to pay it off because they're not organized enough. So there's just so many fundamental and easy to change financial decisions that Canadians don't even know that they're making. And so that's where we, that's where we're here. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it really easy and understandable for Canadians to keep their hard earned cash, to make the right financial decisions. And we've saved Canadians close to a billion dollars since we started in 2012 and we're just getting started. So we're excited about the future and I'm super proud of what we're doing. This is the genesis. This is the reason that we started LowestRates.ca is to help Canadians.
0: That's amazing, man. Well, it's obviously one thing to have, you know, a company that, that people are excited about. Number one, number two, that has a very strong purpose that keeps you and everybody working on this kind of motivated and inspired But three, and I I think this is probably the most important part, is you're addressing a a very important underlying problem. So you're offering, obviously, a solution, but you're still a very big advocate of what this is actually fighting towards, which is helping Canadians specifically become more financially literate uh, on their personal decisions, which is super important. Um, One of the things that I love about this story, too, and uh, obviously I know about it, but a lot of people listening probably don't, is when you were first starting Lowest, and, and your career wasn't always as an entrepreneur, right? You started in corporate, so maybe you could talk a bit about that. But, you, you know, you, you were in the corporate kind of route. And then I think it was in your mid-30s. You had a family, two kids uh, at the time. You looked at your wife and said, listen, I have a really, really good idea. And I have a good feeling about this, more importantly. And I really want to take this on. And she looked at you as, as you know, I, I think this is kind of crazy. I don't know if this is a good time. And you kind of just pursued it. And, and I think why I want to touch on this now, Justin, is... Whether people are looking to become entrepreneurs, start their own thing, or whether they're in the midst of this during this kind of pandemic and they're getting hurt or struggling by it, how did you navigate through the hurdles of doubt, fear, and just sheer persistence, man? You're like, fuck it, basically, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move full force on this, and I don't care what's, what's going to be in my way, essentially.
1: Yeah, well, I did. I worked in the corporate world after I graduated uh, with a commerce degree. I worked in the corporate world for 12 years Mm -hmm. and worked very hard, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, and did very well. And then I became, I was 34 years old, two young kids, and this idea really hit me like a ton of bricks. I decided, look, I think this is a huge opportunity to create a place where Canadians can go to compare their financial options to make the best financial decision to save money. And I saw this as a massive opportunity. I'd worked in the UK and in the UK, this was just a way of life for people who lived in England. They just went to rate comparison sites Mm -hmm. over 70% of all financial transactions start on rate comparison sites in the UK. And this just wasn't the case in Canada. So I saw this as a huge opportunity, as you say. And my wife hates when I tell this story because when I told her, look, I'm not going to continue in the corporate world. I'm gonna start this from scratch. She said, this is a terrible idea, Justin. She said, you know, people are gonna continue to go to the big six banks. They're never going to trust some random site called lowestrates.ca for advice. But instead of that stopping me and it was difficult because, you know, this is my wife, Um, it's difficult to hear that sort of thought process from her, but it actually emboldened me because that thought process, my wife's a doctor, but that thought process Mm -hmm. from a very educated person was exactly the reason why lowestrates.ca was so needed because even some of the most educated in our society were making ridiculous financial decisions. And this is nothing against the big six banks. The big six banks are exceptional institutions, and there's absolutely a place for them in almost every Canadian's financial life. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, there's different banks, and different banks may be better for different people, just as different insurance companies are better for different people and different credit cards. And people need to be able to compare their options, just like in any other area of their life. When, when you talk to people, you know, when you're preparing for a vacation, do you just choose one place and look at one place and go there all the time? No, you go to so. or you go to Trivago, mm-hmm. and you compare their options. When you're looking for a car, you go to Auto Trader. you compare your options. When you're looking for anything, you go to Amazon and compare your options. You know, for goodness sakes, we did a study, and it showed that people spend more time choosing what couch they're going to have in their condo or choosing what color their wall is going to be than they did on choosing their mortgage provider or choosing their car insurance provider. And yet, these are some of the largest financial contributions they're ever gonna make in their life. You know, these payments are going to really define what they're able to do in the rest of their lives. So I really saw my wife's skepticism as something to embolden me and just demonstrate that this was really, really needed. But you know, when you're starting anything, any sort of company, there's going to be so many obstacles. You know, for me, it was, we started this, we bootstrapped it, you know, and for three years I went with no salary. I meant, I went from making, you know, high six figures every year in the corporate world to making literally zero money for the first three years. You know, we were excited when we had 10 people coming to the site and then a hundred and then a thousand, you know, and now we're, we're close to 10 million people per year coming to our site, but there were so many challenges and obstacles along the way there were so many so many reasons for me to stop there were so many people who said that that i should stop and just go the safe route but in my gut i knew that this was something that canada really needed and in my gut i knew that i had the persistence and the focus the drive and the determination and the fire to make this happen and i think you have to have both you have Mm. to have the belief in your gut that the idea that you have is really needed and that it's going to work and then you also have to have the will and the grit to work every single day and overcome the obstacles to make it happen and i continue to have that fire and that grit because you have to otherwise you're not going to be successful
0: when does that belief become a bit more i'm i'm going to say this so what i'm trying to say is you know if you're a founder right you're an entrepreneur, you have an idea sometimes where in your case, you had a belief, you really held on to it, you executed, you started seeing small signs of success, and you just kept, you know, being persistent with it, right? You had that fire as you speak of. And then there are other times where you have that belief, you hold on to that idea, you become emotional, and you just don't know when to give up, right? It's kind of that weird two way lane in, in entrepreneurship. When do you halt something that you just know is not working? And when do you keep persisting with something that you know seems to be working but a lot of you know a lot of challenges up front and whatever but you just have this glimmer of hope how how would you how would you come across that and and deal with it if you're a founder
1: right and that's one of the biggest challenges entrepreneurs have i think to be an entrepreneur you have to by nature be optimistic mm. and but there's a difference between optimism and irrational exuberance you can't simply will an idea to be a good one. I think you need to validate an idea before you jump in with two feet. So you need to understand what is it that you want to sell? How are you going to make money? And I think you need to test that idea with who your target market is. Talk to your target market. Ask them, are you willing to pay for this? How much are you willing to pay for this? And if you can't do that, at least try to see you know, has this idea worked in other countries? Because that's what I did. I saw that this idea, yeah, had worked exceptionally well in other countries and I saw no reason why it wouldn't work well in Canada. I saw that this idea had worked well in other verticals. I referenced the travel vertical, the automobile vertical. So, you know, I had those validations to give me the, um, the hope and the belief and the justification to continue to go on through the obstacles. But there's a lot of people that don't take the time to actually validate their idea and jump in with two feet without talking to their target customers or without seeing if this, if their ideas worked in a different country or in an adjacent industry. So I think it's really important to do that work up front, and it's really important to understand how much can I sell my product for, and how much is it going to aqu- talk, how much is it going to cost me to acquire a consumer? Because there's also a lot of companies where. Okay, I can find someone who's willing to pay for my product, but it costs me way too much to create that product, and I'll never be profitable. So mm-hmm. those are two things that I think are so important for entrepreneurs to do that a lot of them just don't. It seems fundamental, but a lot of them don't because you can't have irrational exuberance. You can't continue to move forward with an idea that's never going to work. And I think that you know the two suggestions I gave are good ways to validate in the first place, you know whether your idea has a good chance of working. It
0: yeah well, well something else I feel that, that is important in your journey that I think a lot of people can learn from is the fact that you were bootstrapped and and for people who might not know the term is basically just self financing your startup without raising any external money. Um, the fact that you did that was that kind of just a, a logical thing for you because I feel like a lot of people now man like you, you, you want to start an idea, the first thing that you think of is well, how am I going to raise money for this right versus where I come from i'm, I'm middle eastern right i'm originally Lebanese. When you say business in, in Lebanon, people immediately are like, okay, well, how, how are you going to make money? That's the first question. It's not how much money are you going to raise. That concept doesn't exist. And not, not to say that that's not a good thing for uh, some startups and certain situations, but being bootstrapped has, has good flavor to it as well. So, so just kind of from your mindset, how was that like for you when you first started? And what is your outlook on this whole capital raising scene right now?
1: So there's no one-size-fits-all solution. There's certain companies like if I were creating a drug company, there's no way I'd be able to bootstrap it. Very capital
0: intensive up front. There's
1: way too much infrastructure and capital required to start a company like that. So there's certain companies that require other investors, Mm -hmm. but there's certain that don't. And I think the reason that, there's a couple of reasons why we bootstrapped. I think the first was, I didn't know anything about being an entrepreneur and I didn't know anything about, raising funds, finding investors. Like you, a business is very simple. A business must make more money than it spends. A business must be profitable. If a business is not profitable, it's by definition not a business. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't well-versed in the Silicon Valley, cool world of let's raise a ton of money from really well-known investors and let's go out there flaunting that because that's a cool way of life and I'm gonna post that on Instagram and in Twitter. You know, th- that's, that wasn't me at all. I didn't know about that world at all. So my focus was, okay, if I'm gonna devote my life to this and if I'm gonna put you know, my family at risk in a way with this, I need to prove very quickly that this can be a profitable business. And so the agreement I made with my wife was, we're gonna start with $150,000, if we run out of money that's it i go back to the corporate world hmm. and so it folk it forced us to be extremely focused to prioritize well and to watch what we were spending and to really force ourselves to find a way to make more money than we spent and thankfully we never we never ran out of money so you know why did we bootstrap i think one it's because i didn't know any better i think two it's because like you to me, a business is something that's profitable. And I think number three is I didn't feel comfortable with taking other people's money. I,
0: that's interesting. Yeah. If I had
1: investors, I probably would have given their money back if it hadn't succeeded because I just wasn't comfortable with it. But it's again, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but I am disgusted, and I choose that word carefully, I'm disgusted by entrepreneurs that think that being an entrepreneur Big is job. all about taking money from others, using and abusing it, yep. building ivory towers, and flaunting flaunting it on Instagram and on social media. That's not what an entrepreneur, but being an entrepreneur is. Being an entrepreneur is extremely difficult. Um, it's about making sacrifices. It's about working exceptionally hard. And I think it's irresponsible and disgusting that there are entrepreneurs out there that will essentially steal money from investors to fund their own... E- Else.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah no, exactly that last point is is a hundred percent what i was trying to get to right not you know not the startups that that really need it i mean there, there are certain situations whether it's life sciences clean tech biotech med devices uh, even some mining companies that are more junior that need that capital up front there are and, and some tech companies too which is where it's warranted uh-huh. but then there are a couple where there's this wave of like look at me i just raised you know 10 mil from sequoia and we're pre-rev and we basically don't have an idea like that that whole thing is is just kind of a weird it's becoming a weird bubble, man, and a weird community. You know, it's more like a metric. It's kind of like how how Gen Zers look at credibility. Before they even know you or or, what, or who you are or what you do, they'll open Instagram and see how many followers you have. You know, it kind of reminds me of that. Like just upfront credibility. This is the quickest way to get it. Which is which is insane.
1: No, it is insane. I think in terms of credibility in PR these days, a lot of it is based on How much you've raised in terms of versus how much you made? Like I know in our space in the fintech space in Canada, you know I know how we rank from a revenue and profitability standpoint. You know, Mm -hmm. anytime there's an award based on fastest growing company for revenue, you know we're on that list. But anytime there's a popularity contest of Canada's top um, growing companies, we're never on that because we don't have the high profile investors. We haven't raised hundreds of millions of dollars. We don't work in an ivory tower. We simply grind. We follow our mission, which is to save billions of dollars for Canadians. We grow. We're very, very profitable and we don't need all of that outside validation. We're validated by delivering the savings to Canadians and by seeing our own business grow. Like Mm -hmm. It makes me excited that we don't have any debt and that I don't have to worry about letting people go even if our revenue and profitabilities go down through this difficult downturn that we have money in the bank to be able to continue to focus on our priorities rather than focus on letting people go. Like I take it there, there's I take it so seriously that I have all of my team members' lives essentially in my hands and their livelihoods and their families. I take that so seriously. And so you know it just really bothers me those companies that focus on just spending money as quickly as they can and raising money when their fundamental business doesn't justify it and they know it. And as you say, this is not a criticism of all entrepreneurs who take funding. In exactly. many, many cases, you can't succeed without taking funding. And there's many entrepreneurs that have taken funding that are massively responsible with those funds and are using them judiciously. But there is still an issue um, in this entrepreneurial environment where you know, having a lot of funding equals success. And that's not the case.
0: Right, right and one of the things that that I think you mentioned which is important is you take that job very seriously in terms of you know I have x amount of employees and how many fts right now are are at lowest justin
1: probably about 75 i mean we have so we have different offices in different provinces but about 70 gotcha.
0: yeah so you have 75 people basically to to look after and take care of from a, from a just a salary perspective right which is a lot of weight how do you as a ceo you know, given that responsibility, running your startup and growing it, uh, or company—I should, I should stop referring to it as a startup—but um, and then, and then the, the personal, you know, the personal side of things with your family, your kids. How do you basically stay sane through all of this? And maybe just a glimpse of what does your day look like in terms of, you know, just a kind of a routine, things you do just to keep you motivated, mentally uh, stable, all all these sorts of things. I'm kind of wondering from from that aspect.
1: Mm-hmm. Health is hugely important. When I was three years into this, I found myself in the emergency room with chest pains, having gained 25 pounds because I wasn't sleeping properly, I was eating really late at night, I'd stopped exercising, and it was because I was putting so much energy into this company and it was so difficult. And I took a step back and I said, look, even if it means I'm gonna be working, two hours, two and a half hours less per day, I need to take better care of myself. So, you know, I'm extremely careful about what I eat. You know, I eat a high protein, high fat diet. I don't eat very much sugar. I don't eat very many carbs. I do intermittent fasting for 18 hours a day. I try to sleep for eight hours a night. I do at least six workouts per week, combination of weights, cardio, you know, I used to be a provincially ranked tennis player, so I still play a lot of tennis. So mm. taking care of my health is a priority. I actually put workout time in as a meeting in my day to make sure that I don't ignore it. You know, I also make sure that I spend time with my family because what am I doing all this for? I'm doing this, of course, to help Canadians, but I'm also doing this to give my family, you know, secure, stable, a comfortable financial future. But I need to enjoy the time with them, so I make sure that I enjoy time with my family. I coach my daughter's soccer teams. Um, I go to all their games. You know, there's nothing more that I like than to spend time watching my kids play sports. So that definitely takes priority and doing those things allows me, when I'm focused on work, to be focused, to make good decisions, to have a positive attitude, you know, and to be able to handle the stress that comes with this. Because there is a lot of stress that comes with it. And my body was telling me, you know, I can't continue this. And so I, I heeded the warnings and, I think that's really important for for all people who are trying to lead companies and who have a lot of stress. You need to give your body what it needs to be able to handle that stress. Mm.
0: Yeah, I love that aspect of, you know, to obviously taking care of your physical um, state because that's super important, whether it's what you're eating, how much you're sleeping, which oftentimes in entrepreneurship can get ignored because there also is a bit of this culture where it's like grind, grind, grind 24 seven. And although it's warranted in some cases where you just have to, grind it out man like especially if if you're building this from from the grounds up in the early days but you also have to have to to kind of put some visibility on your own health because if if that goes away essentially everything falls apart right i mean it has to start with you individually and if you can take care of yourself you're in a good mental state you are more present when you're with your family you're more productive at work so there is that component that's also important and sometimes overlooked or kind of shamed in a weird way
1: A hundred percent. But there's 24 hours in a day. You know, if you sleep eight hours a day, you still got 16 left. Mm. If you work out for one hour a day, you still got 15 left. Even if you work for 12 hours a day, you still got three left to spend with your family. I think you absolutely need to grind. You absolutely need to work hard. You absolutely need to make sacrifices, but make sacrifices in the the right areas. You know, I, I used to love watching TV. I hardly watch TV at all anymore just because i don't have the time between work and my family i don't have instagram i don't have facebook i don't spend time on social media not because i wouldn't like to it's great it's interesting but i just don't have time so you just need to think about what your priorities are and where you want to spend that time i think people who say they don't have time to exercise they don't have time to sleep are making excuses and aren't prioritizing their lives properly
0: love it man well uh last one for you uh for aspiring founders entrepreneurs what would that advice look like from someone who's done it, you know, reach basically the EY entrepreneur of the year, finalist award, all that good stuff that you've been able to accomplish uh, during this kind of journey with, with lowest rates, what would that be?
1: Well, just make sure you really want it. Don't be lured by shows like Silicon Valley, you know, the Facebook movie and all of that. Don't be lured by the fact that you're going to be flying around in private jets And you're going to be able to do what you want all day. That's not what being an entrepreneur is. Being an entrepreneur is grinding. It is difficult. It's making sacrifices. It's pushing through obstacles. It's also hugely rewarding. And it can be the greatest ride ever. But, you know, just be ready to work. And just know in your gut that this is absolutely what you want. And and don't take no for an answer and keep working through it. But don't be lured by kind of what you see in TV and what you think an entrepreneur is because reality versus uh, perception are two very different things.
0: Love that, man. Justin Tuin. Thank you so much, brother. Uh, and for everyone listening, uh, lowestrates.ca is where you can kind of compare mortgages, credit cards, car loans, anything related to your personal finances on the most valuable assets. You need to check that out. And thank you for sharing that story, man. And I think a lot of the advice you shared, especially for founders early in the game or ones looking to get into the game are, are really going to benefit from hearing this. Thanks, George. My pleasure. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.